welcome to the Future of Field Service podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Nicastro. Today, we're going to be talking about what it takes to create a culture of safety in field service. I'm excited to welcome to the podcast today, Franklin Maxson, who is the Vice President of Field Services uh, for North America at Socomec. Franklin, welcome to the Future of Field Service podcast. Hi, Sarah. Great to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to spend some time with you on this topic today. Yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you here. Um, Franklin and I uh, had the opportunity to um, be together in person. Uh, what was it? Well, yeah, um, it was last month uh, still. It seems like longer ago at Field Service Hilton Head. Um, uh, Franklin was part of a, a panel discussion um, that I moderated. And so we caught up after the event and chatted about uh, different topics um, that are you know, top of mind. Um, and, and safety is one that you are particularly passionate about. So I'm excited to have that conversation today. Uh, before we get into the topic at hand, um, just tell everyone a little bit more about yourself, your role, and uh, what Socomec does. Yeah, Sarah. So my background is uh, I'm one of those uh, weird double E's that decided to go get a management degree. Uh, so have been in the management now for pretty close to 10 years, but it really, I have been in field services for the last 20 years. So I started out my career in telecom and then made a switch to field services with GE Healthcare, spent almost 11 years with them in a progression of roles from a field service engineer all the way up through a program manager. And uh, then I decided to change focus and get out of the healthcare environment and go work with the critical power. So the last, uh, nine, 10 years of my career have been in critical power, primarily focused around data centers and that, that type of an environment. Uh, so it's been a really interesting 20 years of uh, learning how to operate in a remote environment long before COVID forced everyone to operate remotely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Um, and, and so, you know, when we caught up after the event, um, you know, we were chatting about what we might do a podcast on, and you said that safety is a topic that is near and dear to you. So as I explained to you when we were chatting, that's, you know, I always like to ask people first, what is it that you would like to talk about? What's important to you? What's top of mind? What are you passionate about? Because to me, those are always uh, the the best conversations to have. So can you share a bit um, with with me and with everyone, you know, why is safety a topic that is important to you? Yes, yeah, Sarah, and I think, uh, you know, safety should be one of those things that all of us are constantly thinking about. For me, it really goes back to growing up with my father. So growing up with my father, I always knew he was a little bit different. And I remember from an early childhood going, thinking about it, because his left hand had actually been amputated um, his fingers, I should say, of his left hand had been amputated. And so he had the majority of his thumb and his pinky, but most of the other fingers had been amputated in an industrial accident. And so I grew up with that. And it's always very interesting, especially as a young child, seeing some of the reactions from some of your friends of how that happens, right? Then later on, as uh, I started working, I actually had a close call with a conveyor. I had a tool that was sitting on a conveyor belt and I was a, a teenager working on some electronics, uh, probably 18 or 19 at the time. And I had a tool sitting on a conveyor, the conveyor turned on and I quickly without thinking reached 
onto the conveyor to try and grab the tool. And my arm got pulled, got jammed up. And thankfully I was able to jam it up against a piece of metal that didn't cut me, but allowed me to have the leverage to pull my arm out. I had a friction burn and abrasions on my arm, uh, probably about a six inch by two inch nasty little spot. That was a really close call for me, right? Then along the way, I became a private pilot and you know, safety is huge in aviation, mm-hmm. whether you're a private pilot or even more so in the commercial world, but safety is huge. And there is a very strong emphasis and a mindset around safety, around checklists, around how do you remain safe in that environment? Then as I transitioned and later on went into the leadership roles, we had a couple of close calls with employees that quite honestly could have ended in fatalities and we were lucky they did not. So over the years, I've had a long exposure to the results of what happens when things don't go well from a safety perspective. And it has become very much something that I'm very passionate about and that we discuss on a regular basis, uh, almost daily basis with my team. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. You know, that's... um. I didn't realize that it stemmed all the way back to uh, the accident that happened um, to your father. And, you know, it's interesting because when, when we were speaking about, you know, doing an episode on, on this topic, it's one of those topics that, you know, it's not um, always, it's not the flashiest, right. You know, like at the event you and I were at last month, everyone's talking about AI, right? Like I didn't, notice any sessions on on safety, right? Um, but what we we spoke about is, you know, while historically, I think in certain industries, it's been more of a conversation, right? You have certain industries, you know, take mining, for example, that just by nature, warrants, you know, very regular, very serious conversations about safety. What we were um, chatting about is, you know, just in the world we're living in today, whether we're talking about, you know, navigating COVID and and other things like that, or just, you know, um, societal things, etc. I mean, no matter what industry we're talking about, in field service, you know, there can and probably will be situations where employees will, um, you know, be at risk in some way, right. And and so it is a very important conversation uh, to have. Um, and uh yeah so um let's talk a little bit about you know in the different experiences you've had and in in your uh perspective um when it comes to sort of the company stance on safety you know the official policies procedures communication um you know the the sort of top down aspect Um, what's your take on what works well, you know, what's important to consider, you know, let's sort of talk about that aspect of things. Yeah. And Sarah, I think that's a very important piece of it, right? Because as we talk, there's different aspects to safety. And right now we're talking about the top down approach for, for safety. And I think that is very important because from an executive perspective, we've got to drive the focus, emphasis, and attention that safety deserves. You're right. It's not sexy. It's not nearly as much fun as talking about AI or, you know, some of the other very cool stuff that's happening out there right now. However, at the core of what we do, especially from a service organization and a service perspective, service is about people, whether it's our clients or 
our most valuable resource, which is our employees. Mm -hmm. So we have to maintain safety uh, in top of mind. And, you know, it was interesting talking uh, a little bit aside with Roy Dockery when we were uh, at the event, mm -hmm. and he has a completely different set of safety parameters uh, than I look at, but we're both still very focused on how do we keep the employees safe? I don't necessarily have to worry about some driver not paying attention running into my employees. He does. But we could take a look across multiple industries and see that this is very much a requirement. Mm -hmm. And when we're talking about how does management encourage this? And even more importantly, within a service perspective, how do we encourage and empower people when we're talking about employees that are often working alone? We are in a distributed environment. We're not seeing them every single day. We have re reduced control of our environment because we're often operating at a client site. So we don't know necessarily what their safety policies are or how well they're implemented. And so when you take all of that into consideration and we take a step back from an executive level and look at what is it that we're actually trying to accomplish with our safety policies, we have to make sure that it is embedded within our culture, within our vision and our mission, and that it remains an active part of every conversation so that we can maintain that focus. Safety is one of those things that if you don't focus on it, you become complacent about it. Mm -hmm. And so that is one of the key factors to setting the stage for being able to have a really good safety culture within the organization. I think it comes down to that, right? It's the policies, the procedures, you know, the law doesn't really drive safety as much as the culture does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that being said, I, I think it's a really good point that the role it does play is in keeping the conversation top of mind, right? Because, you know, like you said, it, it's not a sexy topic. Therefore, it is one that if you aren't intentional about it over time, you can take for granted, um, you know, just assume that people understand what the rules are or, or you know, how they should react in certain scenarios, etc., um, you know, so it, it is important from a, a top down perspective to make sure you're reflecting on, you know, how often and in what ways are re we reinforcing the importance of this. Um, that makes sense. Now, that being said, you know, as you said, the official policy or, you know, rule book guidelines that the company develops and that top down focus um, are not going to be enough. Uh, so can you talk about why that is? Because at the end of the day, we're all humans and we have to remember that our employees are humans as well. And uh, I don't know about you, Sarah, but I know that when I have to read T's and C's for a long time, yeah, I'm going to want to take a nap, right? Mm -hmm. And if we think about our safety manuals and our safety policies, it's just another set of T's and C's that we're all supposed to be out there reading and understanding. So this is where you have to take advantage of psychology, peer pressure, and a cultural norm around safety. Because if you normalize safety, and that is actually the culture that the organization has, then that peer pressure, all of your teammates are all in your leadership are all focused around it and thinking about it and driving that, right? And, you know, it becomes much more of a grassroots effort 
The other thing that is critically important with this, though, is you have to have that open door policy and you have to be able to listen to the employees without judging. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the, the whole judgment part can backfire on you very, very easily in a safety scenario. And so, you know, as, as you think about a grassroots organization that's going to focus on safety, that is going to be able to do it. Um, you know, we think about what are the safest organizations out there? And I'll go back to my roots in aviation. You know, if we stop for a moment and we think about how many people right this minute are actually sitting in an aircraft seven miles up in the sky, it's probably somewhere close to a million people right now at any given moment around the earth, right? And if you think about the total number of travels worldwide and the fact that the accident rate is so tiny, we don't think about it. We jump on an airplane and we go, right? But why does that happen? That happens because of the entire culture that has been built around that. When as a pilot, if you self-report an infraction, like you realize, man, I just screwed up. And you self-report that, you're actually protected from punishment. Now you may get some recommended remedial training that you may have to take, but you're protected from punishment. And if we take some of those aspects and we take some of these punitive aspects that have generally been found within, within the companies and say, you know, you know what, we're not going to focus on that. We're going to try and focus on what is our systemic approach and how do we identify the systemic breakdowns that led to a safety incident? Then we can start to change that cultural and that mindset and develop that basically bottom up. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I think is really important is at a grassroots level, you have to identify the people that are passionate about this, right? Oftentimes, unfortunately, it's people that have either suffered injury or had loved ones suffer injuries, right? But if you can identify them and identify them, the folks that have that passion, and you can begin to create those little teams. And to borrow from General McChrystal's book, right, is eventually create some teams of teams that are focused around safety. They're not necessarily aligned within a normal organizational structure, but you just let that develop so that there's a lot of cross-pollination, a lot of discussion back and forth around what's happening with safety. Mm-hmm. You know, field technicians look, working next to the factory team members and talking about safety. The factory team members understanding more about what the team in the field does and the field team providing an outsider's perspective to what's happening inside of the plant. Those things can open up a lot of interesting perspectives that are not necessarily seen. Mm-hmm. And so when I think about how do we develop all of this, it's a combination of all of this and creating this holistic approach towards safety. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I really like the point about withholding judgment, right? Because we know that um, there's so many aspects that we talk about today in service where, you know, we're, we're creating strategy up here, we're, we're talking about innovation up here, but the reality is happening on the front lines, right? And so the same way you would say, you know, let's say we're talking about technology, like, have you gotten input from your frontline workers? What do they need? What are their challenges, etc? We know how valuable that insight is. But in this scenario, if, you know, they're fearful of being honest about what the issues are, right, then they're not going to share that insight. And, you know, they're going to keep it to themselves. And that's when you have problems that that can arise. So making sure that they're comfortable 
um, sharing that. And, you know, the aviation example is such a good one. I get so frustrated when, yes, I mean, everyone gets frustrated when flights are delayed and canceled, et cetera, right? You get on a flight, you know, you might even be taxiing, oh, wait, there's a light on, you know, we're going to take you back, you're going to get off. But you know, there's people literally throwing temper tantrums. And it's like, would you prefer they take off? I mean, I don't know, like, there's nothing more important than, you know, the safety um, aspect of it. So yeah, it, it's, it's an interesting industry to think about this topic through that lens. Um, so I think, um, yeah, the idea is, you know, how do you create this openness? Um this, you know, really transparent conversation. And, you know, I think you had shared with me when we were chatting the example of, you know, where where there are safety policies and procedures, I think we were talking about sort of someone completing like an inspection. Mm -hmm. Do people know what their people around them know what's going on and why and why it's important, right? You know, do people understand some of the um, situations that field technicians might find themselves in and some of the risks so that, you know, throughout the organization, that importance is is understood. You know, it, it's funny because that it becomes such a check the box exercise, right? And, uh, and there's a couple of different scenarios that you can think about it. Uh, so, in a factory setting, regardless of what kind of industry you're in, there are many times, you know, the monthly safety walks. And what do those com are generally comprised of? Oh, well, let's go check that the aisles are clear. Let's go check that, you know, the fire extinguishers are still where they're supposed to be and that they're within the certificate date of them, that the exits are clear, etc. And some of the things that I have found that, you know, it, throughout my career is you go through and you're checking that box, you're doing all of that, you know, for a field service organization, you may have, uh, you know, if you look at an FBA 70E, it requires that you do a annual audit of lockout tagout. And we all, you know, all of us that work in electrical, no lockout tagout, we practice it, we can recite it in our sleep. And so we go through and we start talking about uh, the lockout tagout and we're going to do that, that check. And it can very easily become a check the box exercise across the board that happens. And one of the things I remember talking to Bob Baker, who was my, my safety partner uh, back at ABB. And uh, one of the things that he really focused and helped to drive was how do we change that conversation? How do we take it from a check the box exercise to a, hey, you know, let's talk about lockout tagout. What have you been doing with lockout tagout? What are the challenges to actually implement lockout tagout? And if you think about a field service organization that may be going to many different sites, for me, it's electrical, but others may have mechanical uh, or hydraulic or other things that have to be locked out, right? Well, there's a variety of breakers, variety of valves, variety of different things that you have to manage and control the energy around. And do we have the right kit to be able to do this? Do we have the right tools and equipment? Are employees having to, you know, use their ingenuity to figure this out instead of actually having a really good engineer process to do this and actually 
changing the focus to having that conversation. Same thing if you're in a factory, right? If you're walking the factory floor, maybe instead of necessarily just going through as quickly as you can to check the boxes, take the time to actually go spend some quality time with those employees in that area and ask them about safety. How are things going? Not just check the aisles and make sure that the fire extinguishers are good and that the exits are clear, but really get to know what they're doing, how they're doing it, and get that feedback. Uh, and ideally, get that feedback in a systemized format that can be acted upon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think even, you know, asking field technicians, you know, is there a time in the last 12 months you felt unsafe? And if so, why? And what did you do about it? You know, not with the idea of, again, from a a judgmental or a punitive standpoint, but just to really understand, you know, you brought up the psychology of it. Like, do they feel safe? Um, And if yes, great. If not, what are the things that are coming up, right? So rather than sort of this blanket or generic um, policy, you can look for, you know, the real challenges and, and make some changes. Um, and I think, talked- yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I think within that perspective, right. Is how do we empower people to, to have some quick little checklist of things to look out for that will put you in a more in an elevated state of mind around safety, right. One of the things that I always talk to my team about is when something changes, you, you're prepared for a certain scope of work when you get to a site. And I'm sure, you know, many of your other guests have always told you that you get to the site and your scope of work is supposed to be A through C. And suddenly we got D, E, and F added to it, right? Well, when that situation happens is making sure that the team is empowered and really focused on let's stop, let's review our safety procedures. Do I have enough PPE? Do I have the right tools? Do I have the right processes in place to be able to cover the revised scope of work? Not just what I came here for, but the things that have been added to it, because now there's a change. Mm-hmm. And typically what, you, what we find when we do the incident investigations It's something changed. Something went outside of the expected norm Mm -hmm. and we weren't prepared for it. So how do we take that moment and say, you know what, let's take 10 minutes. Let's review our hazard analysis. Are we actually ready to proceed to do this or do we have to take a step back? Mm -hmm. And if we have to take a step back, then it comes back to the leadership. We have to be able to support our field team members because that customer may be upset at us, right? right? They may be upset about, hey, now we need another visit. On the flip side is, yes, we may need another visit. But going back to, you know, your earlier example around the aircraft, right? You know, that light went on in the airplane as you're taxiing and you don't really don't want to take off. It's the same scenario with our clients, right? Mm -hmm. We have an alert, something we're not prepared to do or we don't have the right PPE. We do not want to cause an incident on your site or possibly put someone whether it's our employee or one of your employees at risk mm-hmm. and possibly damage the equipment along the way. Yeah. So it's being able to have those conversations to support the field team while they do those types of reviews. Right. And I think that was actually the next thing I was going to ask you, because I think, 
empowerment is important um, in many ways uh, today. But but as we're thinking about safety, I think you know it's a term that gets thrown around a lot, um, and I think. I would guess that it's a lot easier to empower employees around safety when it's something taking place, you know, in your own environment, right? If it's on a factory floor and they see something, speak up, say something, we'll fix it. When you're talking about a field technician going to a customer site and for whatever reason, feeling uncomfortable, feeling at risk, feeling unsafe, empowering them to say, you know, we're going to have to come back. I'm going to have to do this another time. It, it's it's a different conversation. And it, it's one that, you know, I think companies and leaders need to be really thinking about and talking through because I think, you know, that culture you want to create comes from how you react in those moments, not the ones that are easy to address. Do you know what I mean? Like when you're risking customer frustration, when you're risking increasing costs to serve, you know, and you're still choosing safety over those things, that's what tells your employees, this is, I'm important to the company, this is important to the company, right? Um, so I think there's like, shades of empowerment, right? Because there's situations where empowerment is very easy. And then there's situations where it's a lot trickier, right? And And there has to be consideration for that. You're absolutely right. I mean, this is a huge, important piece of it. And, and when you said that the culture gets created in those tough moments, I couldn't have said that better myself. That is the absolute essence of what we're trying to drive, right? So I'll give you an example. I have to protect some names. So so we'll go with some uh, generic names here. But uh, a few years ago, we had some uh, employees at a hyperscale data center. And uh, it was in the middle of a construction job. Everybody on that construction job has liquidated damages for delays, et cetera. Okay, we did. So did the rest of the contractors. Again, this was one of those instances that makes, makes me just to this day, the hair on my arm just stands up thinking about what could have happened. But I had two employees at the site at that particular data center in the middle of this project that was going on. One of them uh, realized they had not grabbed a piece of test equipment that they were going to need. So while the preparations were still ongoing for that test by the second employee, the first employee left to go to their vehicle to grab that piece of test gear. On their way back in, they were walking by a lockout gang box. So in lockout, you might sometimes have these large boxes for multiple teams working at the same time. And so typically the way that this works is you have a single point of contact that contains that maintains control of the entire lock box. And then you put your individual keys for your locks inside of that lock box. So as my employee was walking back, he saw another contractor reaching into the box, prying the box open, like literally prying it open to reach in there and grab his key. He tried to stop him. The employee was very rude and walked away he ran and got his partner out of the building, called his manager. I got a call within probably a minute to two minutes after the this happened from their manager saying, hey, this is a situation. We really need to report this, but you know, all of the LDs and everything, I was like, I don't care. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I'm like, now people are at risk. I don't care. I instructed the team members to go to the owner's trailer and find the safety manager there. Meanwhile, I made place some phone calls to some of my contacts. Within 30 minutes, Sarah, we had shut down construction on a tens of millions of dollar data center. Mm-hmm. And the entire place went into a safety standout that lasted almost a week. Wow. I can't even tell you how much money that cost. Mm-hmm. It was probably in the millions by the time it was all said and done. But at the end of the day, my team was commended by the general contractor and the owner because they had the willingness to report this. And if we had not reported this, somebody could have died very easily in this scenario. There was a whole lot of retraining that had to happen across the board. But it's those situations and it's those scenarios when, yeah, you know what? I could have very easily taken a step back and said, well, you know, maybe it's okay. Go find the supervisor or whatever. But if I did that, then what is my culture to my team, right? I preach safety every day to my team members. And if I can't back them up, then that culture doesn't continue to develop. Yeah. And I think that those are the key elements, right? Is we have to support them. And when you said, we don't know, you know, we don't control our environment in the field. When you're working in a factory and you have a supervisor right there that you can go to, you're right. That is a much easier discussion. But to empower the team members to possibly have a very upset project manager, a very upset general contractor to basically put a job on and completely stop it from proceeding, it is a different level of empowerment. And you're absolutely right about that. And it is something that quite honestly takes courage on their part, uh, on our field technicians' part to be able to do that. And if, if they don't feel that they have the support from the executive leadership, they won't do it. Yeah. And it takes, you know, this is where it takes top down buy-in as well, right? Because that ultimately you need to have multiple layers of support to be able to do something like that, right? Um, So yeah, yeah, that's a really good example. Um, we also spoke, uh, Franklin, about challenging assumptions. Um, so, you know, we talked about like, you know, the rules are the rules based on what you know, what you've encountered, what you've seen. But what about when something outside of that happens? Or what about when something at odds with the rules happen? Um, you know, so this is tied to empowerment, but I'm just wondering if you have any examples of you know, employees feeling comfortable speaking out, challenging assumptions so that you have more of this, you know, working relationship to continue to evolve those procedures and not just let them get stale or become these checkbox exercises. So I think that this is where that open door policy uh, and, you know, listen without judgment really comes into play because, we can set up policies across the board to uh, to try and cover as many scenarios as we can think of. But you're right, things happen that don't fit a neat little box that we created. And I think it's having the employees be able to bring this up. Um, I'll give you an example that, you know, to this day, 
I go back and forth and, and we have open discussions with the employees. So for example, uh, in our line of work, oftentimes we're working inside of a battery cabinet and you cannot turn off a battery, right? It, it has stored energy, it's going to be there. And so when you're having to, for example, check the um, check a bolt or more importantly, put in a new bolt on a battery terminal and you're having to wear your, um, your liners, your gloves, your um, insulated gloves, right? The rubber insulated gloves. And then you have your leather protectors over the top of it. You don't have any dexterity left. Mm -hmm. And that's always been a tension point that we've had in the field as to how the heck do we do this, right? And how do we meet the guidelines? Because if you do a strict reading of NFPA 70E, you have to be in the PPE. There isn't the choice. But yet if we're wearing the PPE, then now we're putting ourselves at risk by dropping the proverbial screw that may cross, you know, to ground or create a ground short and create a, a situation there, right? So I went back to the employees and I said, I hear you, give me options. I'm like, I don't know what the options are. I, I don't, you know, Bob Baker, actually referring back to him, he and I were working on this together and we were looking at different ways to do it. And so some of the employees said, well, we can lower the, the working voltage by separating the different trays. So they're, they're built in a cabinet that has multiple trays. So if we separate and isolate the tray, we can drop the working voltage then maybe we can go to a lower hazard standard. Mm -hmm. So we looked at that and, and understood some, some perspectives. And then another employee said, hey, by the way, I found these cut-resistant arc-rated gloves. And we were like, well, okay, in this particular scenario, under these particular circumstances, if we reduce the working voltage, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Because now we're still providing the cut resistance, but we're actually able to reach inside the cabinet the thing is, though, everything has consequences, right? So now we opened a little bit of a door that we have to trust the employees that that's the only time that we're going to use those gloves. Because to be honest, it opens up a bit of doubt from my perspective, from the safety leadership perspective of we've given them something else that if it's misused, mm -hmm. it could end up in a big hazard. Because if that arc resistant glove is great, because if it shorts, if something shorts, your hand will be protected from a burn but it does not protect you from electrical shock. Mm -hmm. So we always have that dynamic tension, right? Yeah, but I think, you know, what's interesting to me about that is um, totally makes sense. And of course, you know, there's always going to be risk, right? With trying something different, um, you know, but, but I think the other thing though is when you really focus on increasing empowerment, I think you also increase trust. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think, and that's the thing is you, you've listened, you've allowed the employee to be not only heard, but part of the solution. And you have met their need and you're trusting them to use it appropriately. You know what I mean? And I think that because they were heard and they were part of the solution, the likelihood of them respecting that trust and, you know, using it the way they should is a lot higher. Maybe not, you know, there's no guarantees, right? So I understand the concern, but 
I think we do have to understand that the more we can be collaborative and we can, you know, empower our employees, you know, there is that mutual trust um, that that grows as a result of that. And honestly, there's a lot more creativity that you can tap into, right? Mm -hmm. So, so you know, if you're looking for a solution to a weird problem, you've got to find sources of creativity. And, mm -hmm. and if you have, so at that time, I had something like 70 field technicians that were trying to figure this out. That's a whole lot more brain power than just having, you know, myself and the safety manager and maybe a couple of other people looking at this. Uh, it's yeah. that collective creativity and getting them to look at different options and try and understand how we could possibly get to a, a workable solution mm -hmm. that opens up a whole lot of possibilities. And, and again, it goes back to that, you know, grassroots team of teams approach of, Hey, you know what, let's try and understand, let's work with different people. Um, you know, can we come up with better tools? And I think that there are opportunities. There's always opportunities to engineer a better tool. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, some, some folks were working on that. We never came up with something that was satisfactory to all of us. Some folks were working more about how do we reduce the, the specific risk in these situations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also think it's indicative of a good leader, you know, that they came to you with a problem, you listened, but you didn't know the answer. So you just said, I hear you. I, I don't know what the solution is. So, you know, let's figure it out together, right? There's this you know, I think really outdated uh, mentality of, you know, as a leader, I need to have all of the answers, right? And that's, um, that just really stifles that creativity, um, you know, many times over. Um, so that was, was a really good example of, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask is, you know, so we talked about the top down, and we talked about the grassroots. Um, so you want to, have the the top down in terms of, you know, having formal policies, of course, but also keeping the topic itself, you know, front and center, um, top of mind. But then you want to create this culture and the culture really happens within the ranks, right? How do you make sure those two are ultimately meshing? Okay, like, how do we make sure that uh, we're all moving in in one direction together and not, um, you know, at odds with with one another somehow. Yeah, it, that's a great question. And um, and I call it the dynamic tension, right? It's a dynamic tension that we always have to uh, have to watch for. And, you know, I think that there's a couple of different things uh, from a top down perspective. We've got to set goals, expectations and how do we measure that? Are we actually moving towards the outcome that we want to have? Are we still going in the right direction? So we have to be able to measure that. From a grassroots perspective, I like to always implement a mechanism where we document what is being found out in the field. And as we document those, we usually call them hazard reports or safety observations, whatever you want to call them. Um, but we record those and we bring those in and it's actually trying to get to a, what I call a close rate on those where we're reviewing them all. We may not be able to implement all of them. Some of them, to be perfectly honest, some of them may not actually be something that makes sense. Mm -hmm. 
And we have to be able to have that candid feedback to the employees and explain why it does not make sense and what it was that they missed. And that gives you some opportunities for some really good discussions and some training from mm -hmm. that perspective. There are some that we have to close out immediately, right? These are obviously a big hazard. It is a immediate risk and we have to put immediate focus and effort on it and get it taken care of. There are some that we're gonna say, you know what, we're gonna put a project team around that and we're gonna close that out. And there are some that we, we literally have to say, you know what, we're going to watch this, figure out where it's going, what do we have to do with it? And so there is a several different buckets and categories, but I think the important thing is being able to share back with a line team. We're, that, we're looking at all of them, mm -hmm. right? And, and here's where some of these ended up. Some of these we may not be able to do anything about because of X, Y, and Z. Some of these we have a project going on and it's gonna take you know anywhere from six months to a year to close out. Some of these we're working right now. And you know some of these others just, we, we went back and had feedback with, directly with the employee and were able to close them out. Don't have to say anything more than that, right? Yeah. But if you can create that feedback mechanism and it really is, being completely transparent, it's hard work for the leadership team, mm -hmm. right? Because from, from the team leader to the regional manager to, you know, all the way up to myself, we all have to remain engaged and focus on these things and making sure that they don't language because it's too easy to let them just sit because, you know, it's not revenue generating. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so because it's not revenue generating, maybe we don't have the, the bandwidth to add to it. But if we don't have that bandwidth, and what I find is the culture begins to rapidly slide back. Yeah. And I think I mentioned that in our earlier conversation that safety is one of those things that requires constant attention because otherwise we slide back very easily. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's a very, um, I think important and honest comment that because it isn't revenue generating, it would be really easy to push it because that is the pressure and the balancing act that service leaders are faced with all the time. Right. Um, but it is important. And I think, you know, doing that hard work of making sure that that feedback loop exists is the only way that those employees will continue to engage, challenge assumptions, um, give input, you know, and be bought into that culture because you're showing you care by doing the work, which makes them engaged and care as well. You know, the minute you guys say like, okay, well, yes, this is important, but it's not as important as the money we're making. So, you know, we can't prioritize the time to do this. Um, not that you would say that, but, you know, they know that. And then it just sort of, yeah, erodes, I mean, to your point, right? So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think one of the things, this is something that I was talking to my, my core leadership team about was how do we, we know that there isn't revenue associated with safety, but if you think about the cost associated with ignoring it there is a huge cost right there yeah. and so one of the challenges that i've had to to both my team as well as the finance team um, is how could we quantify this a little bit better right mm -hmm. you know if if we had 
an accident rate of whatever, what does that equate to from lost time, from you know, insurance, possibly premiums that have to go up from a, uh, you know, health coverage that has to increase, et cetera. And how do we actually quantify some of that? Mm -hmm. um, I'll be honest, I don't have the answers to those yet. And, uh, and hopefully there are some out there that listen to this that actually have those answers, would love to hear from them how they've done that. But I think from a leadership perspective, we really got to think about it from, it's not revenue generating, but it is avoiding cost yeah. and there is a huge implication. And I mean, the worst case scenario would be a fatality and there's all sorts of things that come along with that, right? But even if it's not a fatality, if we lose an employee because of a safety incident and we have to bring someone new and train them up from, in my industry, we're talking basically 18 months and probably somewhere in the neighborhood of $300,000 to get a new employee up to speed. Mm -hmm. That's a significant amount of cost. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, again, you know, this is another point you're making that could be translated to a variety of different topics in field service, right? But this idea that we've historically perceived investments of time, money, whatever, based on, you know, making money. Um, in a quantifiable way, right? Uh, return on investment. But there is these different areas where there's this cost of doing nothing that is real and significant and presents significant risk that we have to get better at talking about prioritizing because, you know, that's, um, you know, it, it's relevant, like I said, to a number of different topics. Um, so, yeah. That's another really good point. Um, okay, Franklin. So what would you say is your biggest personal lesson learned um, related to today's topic? Do I have to limit it to one? No. <laughs> so there are, there's actually two, two big things that I think uh, over the years just have solidified in my mind. Um, if you stop paying attention to safety, Safety will erode. Mm -hmm. There is no doubt about it. I have seen it. Unfortunately, I have made that mistake and have seen the results and have had to come back from that uh, organizationally, right? Uh, just quick look away. And the next thing you know, there are things that are changing and that are not going the right way because we stopped focusing on it for, and it didn't take long, just a couple of months and it started to erode. And I think the other thing, and I'll credit Bob Baker, uh, who I've mentioned earlier uh, to this, is he, he once told me this. He said, for all that we complain about the laws and the rules and the guidelines, we have to remember that every safety guideline, every safety law, every rule that is out there was written in the blood of those injured or killed at work. That is a stark reality that we have to understand across the board, right? It's, uh, it's something that I have shared with my team members because at the end of the day, you know, the question that I ask the team is, how much are you willing to give for you at this company? My dad gave his fingers. You know, mm -hmm. I think that my sweat and tears are enough. I don't want to shed any blood. Right. 
Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good point. Um, yeah, very good, very good insight. And, and I think this has been, you know, a really helpful conversation around a topic that doesn't get enough attention. So uh, I'm really glad we chose to talk about it and um, appreciate you coming and sharing your personal experiences and your lessons learned as a leader and, um, you know, your thoughts on how to create that culture and, and, you know, keep it top of mind. So thank you. You're welcome, Sarah. It's definitely been a pleasure. Yeah, we'll do it again sometime. Um, but, <laughs> but thank you so much, Franklin. I appreciate it. You're welcome. You can learn more by visiting us at futureoffieldservice.com. While you're there, be sure to sign up for the Future of Field Service Insider so that you get the latest content delivered to your email every other week. The Future of Field Service podcast is published in partnership with IFS. You can learn more at ifs.com. As always, thank you for listening.